So we're doing um, this series on discipleship, and I just want to bring us back. I know we've talked about it the last few weeks, but discipleship, if we want to capture what does it really mean to live a life of discipleship, discipleship is simply going through life, living out our devotion to Jesus. That's what discipleship is, living a life of devotion to Jesus. And it's it's described as the lifestyle of a disciple. And I wanted to give you guys a framework over these three weeks that will help you figure out how to do that, kind of like a bullseye. How can you live a life of devotion to Jesus? How can you live out this, this life of discipleship? And we're building it around these three words, master, message, and mission. So those are pretty easy to remember, hopefully six months from now. My hope is that you'll be able to think about master, message, mission, and that can be a little trigger that just hopefully brings some of these verses, some of these principles back to mind, and it can recenter you on living a life of discipleship. So two weeks ago, we really focused on this idea of being centered on Jesus, and that's the master, and I really appreciate quoting Galatians 2.20. We really tried to focus on, I no longer live, Christ lives through me. And that's, that involves radical surrender on our part. But that's the heart of discipleship, is allowing Christ to live his life through us in this earthly world. So that's Master. Last week, we talked about living on message. And if you remember, we talked about the necessity of having three basic commitments if we're going to live on message. And the first is that we have to listen to God's word. Second, we have to obey God's word. And the third, we have to be willing to share God's word. So living on message isn't just about knowing a lot of trivia or information about God's word. Uh, It is important to learn God's word, but we also have to be committed to obeying it, and we need to be committed to sharing it. All three of those things are involved in living on message. And then tonight, we're going to talk about how to get involved in the mission, because Jesus, our master, not only does he have this message, but he has a mission that he's doing in the world today that he wants us to be a part of. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, being on mission for Jesus right here in San Diego. What is the mission of Jesus, and how can you be involved in it? I hope that that's what you take away from this evening. So, it can be hard to know what is the mission of Jesus. That's actually a pretty big question. What is the mission that God is doing? But I want to to start by convincing you that God's mission hasn't changed. So, there's a verse in Psalm 33, verse 11. It says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So whatever God's plans were in the beginning, they have not changed. Now, there have been some challenges that have happened, and really the story of the Bible and the story of Jesus is a story of how God is determined to accomplish his mission. This mission is going to happen. 
Um, and that's one way to think about the Bible. It's the story of how God is going to accomplish his purposes. He's going to fulfill his plans because the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So let's go back to Genesis because whatever the plan is, whatever the mission is that God is doing in the world today, it's going to be connected to what God was doing way back in Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to start there, and we're going to start with verses 26 through 28. These are very familiar verses. I'm sure most of you have heard them before, but go ahead and turn in your Bibles. If you have your phone and you've got the Bible app, you can, uh, you can pull that up. <laughs> Should be pretty quick to find. Genesis chapter 1. Again, this is right from the start, the beginning. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Okay, so this mission begins with God creating, fashioning a creature that shares his image. Uh, and and this, this, this creature, mankind, Adam and Eve, they were placed in a paradise, the Garden of Eden. And their mission was to walk with God, um, co-rule over the earth that he had created, and display the image of God. So when God looked down from heaven on the earth, he would see a world full of people who looked like him and who were walking with him. All right, so that's where we start in the Bible. Mankind is designed to to walk with God and to look like God, to, to share his image and to be involved in what God is doing. But you, you find very quickly in Genesis that the plan goes sideways. It gets a little bit off track. Well, it gets a lot off track. And it has to do with this thing called sin. Now, sin is definitely worth something. It's something that is, is worth studying through scriptures. What does it mean, sin? But for tonight, I just want you to focus on this idea that sin distorts God's image. It, it mars God's image. It deforms God's image. So now, and it also disrupts God's purpose. So now when God looks down on the earth at mankind, instead of seeing people who look like him, we're still all made in the image of God, but now there's a twisted distortion to that image. There's, there's part of us that doesn't look like God, that does not reflect his character, his values, who he is. And instead of walking with God, sin separates us. So now we're going through life, ignoring God, breaking God's rules, and all of that gets traced back to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so God has this purpose. It, it centers around this creature, mankind, and that purpose is threatened or disrupted by sin. And it gets pretty bad. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, which is where the story of Noah begins, it says that in, in verses 5 and 6, 
It says that God looks down on the earth and it was that the whole earth, that the whole earth had become corrupt. And I love that verse because that's another aspect of sin is that it's simply corrupting something that was whole and good. So sin leads to corruption. And corruption is a little bit different than immorality or evil. It's just a, um, it's an eroding, it's, it's a, it involves evil as well. And so Genesis tells us that, that, that the whole earth had become corrupt and that mankind had, had uh, corrupted his way on the earth. And it says that every thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. Now, you can read that in Genesis 6, 5, and 6. It's, it's a pretty absolute statement. Um, every intent of man's heart was only evil all the time. So that's how bad things had gotten from Genesis 1 to Genesis 6. And so God floods the earth, and he restarts with Noah. And as you read further, you see that God has a plan and a purpose, and it revolves around a man by the name of Abraham. And actually, Abraham is still very much important to us today. Even though we live 4,000 years removed from Abraham, we're not his, most of us are, perhaps all of us are not his physical descendants, but all of us are connected to Abraham. And so studying the story of Abraham is very important. And it, it sheds light on this mission that God has on the earth. But partway through the story of Abraham, there is a, a, bizarre, there's a bizarre story in his story where God tells him that he wants Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And I don't know, maybe all of you have heard of that story. I don't know how many of you have thought about it, but it's a pretty hard story to wrap your mind around. Why would God do this? First of all, God promised Isaac to Abraham, and Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill that promise. And then God asks him, commands him to, to offer up his son, his only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. And if you remember the story, um, they, they take a three-day journey to the mountain where Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. And, you know, Isaac is old enough to do a few things. First of all, it says that Isaac carried the wood up the mountain um, with Abraham. So he's old enough to carry the wood that he's going to be sacrificed on, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> Um, it also says that he recognized that they were missing something important because up until this point, his dad had not explained that Isaac was going to be the sacrifice. And so Isaac tells his dad, hey, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but we don't have a lamb. And uh, if you remember Abraham's response, what did he say? Anyone remember? God will provide the lamb. And then when they get to the top, he he ties his son to the wood. He raises his knife in the air, and God tells him to stop. Crazy story, right? <laughs> what is this all about? Um, what happens next? Now, this is some Bible trivia. So what was it that got stuck in the bushes? A ram. Okay, so I'm going to read that verse, verse 13. Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Now, what did Abraham say that God would provide? A ram? God would provide what kind of animal? A lamb. What did God provide? Not a lamb. God provided a ram. And what you need to understand is that this is a shadow story. God wanted a, God wanted a pic, he wanted to give us a picture of something that was going to happen at a much deeper level a few thousand years later. A father was going to sacrifice his only son. That son was going to carry wood up a mountain. Uh, and then, in this case, the father was going to go through with that sacrifice. He was going to offer his son as a sacrifice. So what, what Abraham didn't have to go through with, God did go through. And if you remember, in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God did provide the Lamb. Jesus was that Lamb. And this story way back in Genesis, this is why you've got to study the Bible. The mission of, of God is throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's it's presented in bits and pieces, in shadows, but it all comes together if you become a student of God's word. Now, we're going to leave Abraham there in Genesis 22, because I I just wanted to connect it to the New Testament, where where we're going to spend most of our time here that's remaining. But the rest of the Old Testament, I would say, (laughs) you could really break it down to two themes that happen over and over and over. They, They drive home this point. First is that man is in trouble and he cannot save himself. Man has broken the world, he's broken um, society, and they, just, they, they keep getting into situations that they cannot get themselves out of. So the first theme of the Old Testament is that man cannot save himself. He needs outside help. He needs a savior. The second theme of the Old Testament is that somehow, and, and this may be hard for us to understand, but somehow, Sacrifice removes sin and restores relationship. Somehow, this blood sacrifice is what will remove the problem, which is sin. The thing that's distorting God's image, the thing that's separating us from him. Blood sacrifice will remove sin and restore the relationship. So, in John 1, it's go time. Jesus has actually come to earth. Jesus is unique among all people who have ever walked on the earth. His life predated his birth. For the rest of us, we all show up at a certain time, and that's the beginning. When Jesus showed up in Bethlehem, that was not the beginning of his life. Jesus chose to come to earth to fulfill this plan that God had, to be the Lamb of God and to bring about the accomplishment of God's purposes and God's plan to accomplish the mission. And when Christians say that Jesus is the only way, this is why we say it. It's not because we look down on other faiths, other religions, but it's because no one else has been that sacrifice. No one else has provided what the mission required, which was 
a blood sacrifice, a lamb to take away sin and to restore the relationship. So we're not, um, we're not being prideful. We're simply saying this is what the mission required, and Jesus is the only one who, who met, that, met that requirement. So only in Jesus can relationship be restored, which was part of the original plan to walk with God. God wanted a world full of people that walked with him and were involved in his purposes. And only in Jesus can the image be restored, can sin be taken out, so that when God looks at us, he sees his image restored. That's the good news. The good news is that Jesus is offering us a way back to God. And we're going to talk about how we begin to live that out. But first, I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is as the Apostle Paul was trying to put together what has happened, what, what has Jesus accomplished, why did he come, and what does it mean for us. This was one of the, the ways that he described it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 15. Here's what Paul says, Jesus died For all of us, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised back to life for them. So, we have stopped evaluating other people from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, but how differently we understand him now. And this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a completely new person. The old is gone, and new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling others to him. Because God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And so, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us, and we speak for Christ when we plead with you, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's, that's really what we're talking about. Like, you'll see some of those themes we've been talking about over the past two weeks. He starts off by saying, why did Jesus die? What does he say there in verse 15? So that we would no longer live for ourselves. Now, a lot of people might say, well, Christ died so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. Or Christ died so that you could go to heaven. And I'm not saying that that's not true, but that's not what Paul describes here. Why did Christ die? So that you would stop living for yourself and so that you would start living for Jesus. And what does it mean that he came and died? Why did he do it? To bring us back to God, to reconcile us. And even more than that, he gave to us this message and this mission. He wants us to join him in this work of helping other people find their way back to God, and be reconciled, okay? So if you're going to be part of the mission of Jesus, two things have to happen. First, you have to be rescued. 
It's one of the main themes of the Old Testament. Your life is a mess and you can't fix it. So you need outside help. You need a savior. That's why God sent Jesus to earth. That's the good news. You don't have to fix it. Uh, God has a savior that is capable of rescuing you. But the second thing that needs to happen if you're going to be part of this mission is that you need to become a rescuer. So you need to be rescued and you need to be willing to go back into the waters and rescue others, to help others find their way back to God, just as you have. So I want to close with a verse, and actually, Brian didn't know this, but I want to actually finish with 2 Timothy chapter 2, because it's important to know what the mission is. It's also important to know where to start and how we can get involved. And you guys see this, I think, I assume every week you see the little slide, and it, it says, uh, I don't remember exactly, but it was like, disciple, be one, make one. I think that's, that's basically what it was saying. Uh, that's where we're going to finish. That's where we're going to finish with tonight. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, is going to be what I leave you with. So here, Paul again is writing the same same person who wrote 2 Corinthians, but it's later in life. In fact, it's at the very end of his life. And he's writing to a, a, a person that he himself discipled, that he gave a lot of his time and energy to over the years. He helped Timothy learn how to walk with God. He was part of God's purpose for reconciling Timothy to God. And here he is probably 20 years into their relationship, and this is what he has to say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The way God has designed this mission to be lived out is generational. One generation sharing and teaching the next. One group of disciples becoming strong in the Lord. That's what he tells Timothy in verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so that's an admonition for all of us tonight. Take your faith seriously. Become strong in this faith that God has given you. But don't stop there because verse 2 says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to others who will be able to teach others also. And it's, it's often been pointed out that you have four generations there, right? You've got Paul, who gave all of this time and, and effort to Timothy, and now he's telling Timothy, you're responsible to pass that on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you're somewhere in that generational chain right now. Maybe you are, probably you are, a young Timothy, and what you really need is to find an older Paul that you can learn from so that you can become strong in your faith. But understand that there's an expectation that you would pass those things on and share those things with faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is not new. Jesus, when he discipled those first 12 followers, it was always with the expectation that they were going to turn around and do it to those who came later, right? 
Because he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. From the very beginning, there was this expectation. If you follow me, you're going to become a fisher of men. And he also said, freely you have received, freely give. And that's how discipleship should work. You should be freely receiving from others, but the expectation is that you'll turn around and pay that forward. Now, in my own experience, I spent about a year as a, as a young believer wanting this, wanting God to send me some sort of older believer that could share with me and teach me. And God's plan for my life is that he, he let me go without that for about a year. And um, I was... I was so eager for that to happen, uh, and yet God did not fulfill it. And I suspect that part of that was when God did finally answer that prayer, um, I really took advantage of that. That, that, was, that was a relationship that I valued and I wanted to get the most out of. And so in my life, the Paul in my life was a man named Cecil. And Cecil and his wife Jeannie spent seven years discipling and teaching my wife Cindy and I, how to grow in our faith, how to obey the scriptures, and how to share them with others. Um, and I, I've tried to share that, I've tried to pay that forward in my own life over the past 25 years. So let me leave you with a few more action items, hopefully. Um, to be part of this mission, you need to be discipled. You need someone else sharing with you. That's the way God has designed the faith to grow. He's given us older believers to invest in us and to share with us. And you also need to commit to discipling someone else. And that, that can start right away. When I first began to be discipled, I thought, in my head, I was going to spend 10 years learning from this really wise, older mentor then I would be ready to share with someone else. And thankfully, he was very wise. He told me, no, you start this week. <laughs> this week, you're going to be learning, but you're also going to be sharing. So these things are not, um, they're not sequential. Like you should be getting discipled right now, and you should be learning how to share with others right now. So you're going to need to pray. Let me challenge you to do that. If you're not being actively discipled right now, pray and ask God to give you that kind of relationship with an older believer who will invest in you and share their life with you. Um, and then secondly, commit to learn under an older believer. And there's several of them in this room tonight. So if you're not being discipled, if you're not in that kind of a committed relationship, then you know, talk with Joy, talk with Hope, with Ryan, with Nate, with Alex, with Brian, uh, with Will. There's a lot of people here tonight who've been following Jesus for years, um, who that's what they want to do. I don't know if they've told you that or not, but they actually want to meet with you and help you grow because they want to be part of this mission that Jesus is doing in the world. And then finally, commit to reach out and share with others. So this final challenge, if you're coming out every Tuesday, every Tuesday you should invite one other person to come with you. The easiest way to start is the way the first disciples started. They, they just said, come and see. So they had people that they knew, that they worked with, that were in their family, and they were learning some cool stuff by being around Jesus. And so they just said, hey, I'm going to a game night Saturday. Why don't you come with me? Hey, I've been going to this Bible study on Tuesday. Why don't you come with me? 
hey, I'm going to go play volleyball on Sunday. Why don't you come with me? And I, I want to challenge you. How, how can I say this? Um, every event you go to, try to invite someone. I don't want to say don't come if you don't invite, but you should be thinking about it like, wow, I came out. I didn't even invite, I didn't even invite anyone to join me. Like that should actually get to be a little bit bothersome to you. Like, I just came out to this by myself. I didn't really reach out and invite anyone else to come. So you can start really basic. Just invite someone to join you with what you're doing. And then as you learn and you grow, you're going to get better and better. But most of it's a mindset. Most of it is just thinking of other people, being aware, and then being willing to kind of take that first step and initiate. So pray for someone to disciple you. If you have an opportunity, if there's someone already willing to disciple you, commit to that relationship and then commit to sharing with someone else, even if it's just inviting them to come with you to an event. That's, that's how we start as disciple makers.